Great, Rich. So we, we, we'll start off by just giving you, you know, just a couple minutes to introduce yourself. You know, I already told him that you went to Georgetown. I already told him IVP, uh, Ven Rock, Equal Ventures. And I think really what I'd love to, to make sure you convey is just a little bit about Equal Ventures and, and where you are today and, and why you decided to make that move. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like you got my whole background from, from Ryan, so I'll skip the past. And so present is running a fund called Equal Ventures here in New York. Uh, it's a seed stage venture fund where we focus on leading and co-leading seed rounds. What that means for us is we invest a million to $2 million into your company out of a 2 to $4 million round, and we focus on what we call legacy markets, so uh, sectors that have not become tech-enabled yet. Uh, examples of those include retail, child care, elderly care, logistics, insurance, and so those are the sectors that we focus our time in. Uh, we've got already five portfolio companies and uh, ready to make some more. Right. So just to give a little bit of context, uh, you said seed stage. Yeah. And so for folks that may not be familiar with the jargon of venture at all, what is a seed stage company and uh, what would make uh, a firm like Equal Ventures even interested mm -hmm. in a seed stage company. Sure. Yeah, so seed stage for as we define it is a company that has not hit product market fit yet. You know, you're basically 12 to 18 months away from proving those milestones and that's where we like to come in, help you get to that point where you can then raise that next round. So a seed round for us is the first institutional round that you raise. It's the first time you're raising money outside of your friends or family. I don't have friends or family that can raise that much money for myself and so I'm sure some of us don't either, but um, that's the round that we're actually participating in. And that next round that we're trying to get you to is, is called that Series A. That's called the 5 to 10 to $12 million round that we want to get you to so you can actually scale your business beyond us. Right. Uh, what got you interested in, in venture, first of all? I mean, was that your background? Were you studying, do you have to study math for that? Do you got to study economics? Do you got to study political science? What gets you interested in venture, and what kind of background do you think you need to be able to excel as a venture investor? Yes, I think you, there is no right background for venture capital. I think the, the real background are inherent traits in, in oneself. And so, you know, intellectually curious, um, passionate about technology, looking for finding ways to be helpful to companies, that's what it really means. And at the end of the day, anyone can have those traits. And so um, the reason why the industry looks the way it does is because people assume that those aren't the traits. They assume that the traits are you got to go to Harvard like this dude, but be much, much paler than this dude to be in the industry. And, and so that's, that's not the case, but that's how it looks today, right? And so, um, you know, for me, I studied government at Georgetown. I actually went there because I thought I wanted to be a politician. I started studying government there, and I realized I hated politics because nothing ever happened. Um, and, and everything in tech moved so fast, I thought, okay, let me just skip this and forget about this. Um, where I got interested in venture capital was after college, I worked at in, uh, Credit Suisse doing investment banking. And when I was there, I realized I also didn't like that either. But I did learn that I liked tech and I liked investing. And so did some research and found that the, the way to do it on the private side is venture capital. And then I try to pick as many doors as possible to kind of find my way in, in the industry. Did you have to take separate courses to really prepare yourself for the kind of success that, uh, that you've you've achieved so far. And when I say that, I mean, look, there's all kinds of courses we could take. You know, there's courses that you take in college, and then when I got to the music industry, there are definitely people who say, yo, man, I learned from the streets. You know what I mean? I, I took my, I went to the school of hard knocks, sure. you know? Yeah. And so uh, being an investor at Credit Suisse, an yeah. investment banker at Credit Suisse, what's the main difference between being an investor, an, an investment banker and being a venture investor? 
Yeah, so as an investment banker, one, you're working with public companies, you know, as a venture capitalist, working with private companies. Um, uh, as investment banking, it's really just trying to sell deals to public companies, trying to sell which companies they should go buy, you know, trying to take private companies public, trying to um, give them debt for their business. Honestly, it's just a lot of financial engineering where you really don't actually help companies. Um, in the private world, what you're doing is you're working with companies that are very, very early stage, you know. I've invested in a company that had two employees, right? And so you can find things super, super early. But even when you're investing in companies that are 100 and 200 employees, there's still a lot of things that are broken in those companies. They could still use a lot of help, and they need you to help them. Um, public companies are just too large and, and too you know, immobile to actually be helpful to. And so if you want to be not only an investor, but be hands-on and be helpful to founders, the, the, I think the path is venture capital. Obviously, I'm biased, so... <laughs> Very biased. So for, for folks that are in this room, I think a lot of folks came to this room because uh, maybe they just had an interest in investing in general, right? So maybe you got a savings account, maybe you got $10 in there, maybe you got $100 in there, maybe you got $1,000 in there. If you've only got $1,000 in your savings account, you're in great company because the statistic is that 61% of people in the United States would not be able to cover a $1,000 emergency without going into debt, all right? Six out of 10 people in this room and in the United States would not be able to cover a $1,000 emergency without going into debt. Now, if you're a creative, Man, <laughs> I think the number goes a little bit higher a than six higher, out of ten, right? Yeah. And trust me, I've, I've definitely been, I've definitely been there. You know what I'm saying? Your ramen noodles, and you know, you know, the pizza is just, it's just not healthy, but you hungry. You know what I'm saying? The price is right though. And then after a while, you just start making pizza. You yes. just said bread. You know what I'm saying? Ketchup, ketchup, cheese. You know what I mean? Trust me, I, I've definitely been there. I know, I, I, I know the struggle, and so. When you think about an emergency fund, you know what I mean? And also as a creative, we want to be fly, you know what I'm saying? We want to, we want to, uh, we want to, uh, live it, fake it till you make it. We, we, we well, I don't believe in that, but you got to, though. Uh, but, I, I, I do that, <laughs> I'm still doing it right now, right? On right. this stage, right? Right, <laughs> right, right, okay, all right, all right, Kurt. all right, Rich, all right, all right, we try, all right. Okay. I got to go now. All right. <laughs> when you do actually put aside some money, right, and you want to start investing, right, and you, maybe you've just heard that, hey, you know, you just put your money in a savings account, right, and then you get a little bit more knowledge and somebody says, hey, that money in the savings account, actually, you might be losing money versus inflation, right? So then folks are saying, well, you know, you actually need to put your money somewhere that's actually going to at least beat inflation. Sure. And so as a private investor, sometimes you're not able to get into these venture deals. You won't, able, you won't be able to get into Uber before it goes public. You won't be able to get into Dropbox before it goes public. And so for folks that are sitting in this room and, and do have an appetite for investing, um, as an investment banker, did you have any sort of uh, signals or any kinds of um, different metrics that you would track that would let you know that a company is a good company in which you should invest? Yeah, I think um, it, it depends on the industry that you're looking at. But I think uh, before looking at the metrics, what I, what I try and pay attention to is the, the trends. And so what are the catalysts that make whatever industry they're in 
a good industry to be in. Because at the end of the day, like a lot of these companies that, that grow to be a certain scale, they grew that way not because that was a great business, but because that space just blew up, so it didn't matter. Like There is Uber and Lyft. It didn't matter which one you picked because that space just became so big that if you were an early investor in any of those companies, you made a lot of money, regardless if you picked the right one or the wrong one. And so, um, one, we start off with the trends, and so what catalyst makes that space interesting? Uh, and then when we dive into the business, I think every business is, is unique. And so when I mentioned product market fit earlier, we don't view it as like, show me a million dollars revenue, show me whatever it is in, in churn or ARR or IB. Our metric is, what do you need to prove out of your business that determines that you've figured it out. And that might mean we need to, let's say you're a retailer, you need to get um, you know, the best brands on there. And the best brands are these three. If we get one of these, we're gonna win, we know that. And so it's not always a financial metric that, that trips you to say you're gonna win. It's much more of you know, what about your business you have to prove to show me and everyone else that you're gonna be the company that, that wins your category. And so um, that's how I think about it, at the early stage at least. Yeah. For sure, so let's just say that uh, someone in this room um, they're not going to be a venture investor, right? But they do have $500, right? And they're interested in potentially getting into the stock market, right? So you, with the level of experience and knowledge that you've uh, amassed over the time that you've just been in the financial markets, um, how does someone actually make a decision on investing in Uber mm-hmm. post-IPO, Right. So some people are saying, okay, look, I wasn't able to get into Uber before mm-hmm. it went public, but it's available now. Yeah. How do I make a decision? And here we actually talk to a venture capitalist. Sure. How do I make a decision on Uber as a company now that it's public? Yeah. Well, um, one thing, I'm a venture capitalist, not a public investor, so I might give you the wrong advice, but I'll try. Um, but no, I think, I think at the end of the day you want to um, – try and pick the companies to invest in that you understand, right? And so there's a lot of companies that might make great returns, but just because it was a great return, if you got it for the wrong reasons, it doesn't mean you should replicate that strategy into other opportunities. And so for, for most people in anywhere in the world, they're going to tend to better understand consumer-facing businesses because we can use them ourselves and feel them and touch them. And so I'd, I'd start with that lens first of, like, what do you understand, what do you know? And then, you know, use whatever you know, metrics you can determine uh, whether you think it will keep growing. And so if you realize that, wow, everyone that I know is getting off of Uber and going to Lyft or vice versa, you might want to pick one versus the other. Um, if you, once again, are thinking about these trends, like, you know, there's, like, we focus a lot on childcare right now as I think a space that's particularly attractive. There's a, a, a big company called Bright Horizons in, in the space. They basically do daycare centers for employers. Um, they do it on-site. And I think most of us understand childcare. It's not seen as consumer, but it's a space that we understand. We all see, like the trend that we're seeing is urbanization is happening. And with urbanization, you see more and more families in cities, but there aren't enough daycare centers being built in cities. And so that gives a company like Bright Horizons a lot of pricing power. So they can increase their prices and they can do what they want because there are not enough other competitors in the space. And so that's like a good company to go after because um, the trends, once again, are in their favor. And so when you can't, analyze the business, because most of us you know, oftentimes can't understand the financial model, the P&L business, if it's making money or not, but we can understand is the trend in their favor or not. And so I think what I tell folks that don't experience public investing is try and pick the trend that you believe in and find the best companies that are attacking that trend. Most times that, that will be enough to get you the return you're looking for. For sure. Now, a lot of folks are in this situation where, okay, I'm learning, I'm learning, I'm learning. Mm-hmm. 
uh, I'm doing a lot of research, but I just don't even have any money to invest. And so what we've been finding in venture, especially, is that there are opportunities. And I've had you know, a lot of interns who've come through my program who have now gone on to go work at Snapchat as developers, et cetera, and they get some equity in some of these companies. And you know, Snapchat goes public. Now I got a friend of mine who's a Snapchat millionaire, right? Mm -hmm. And so he's now coming to me and saying, OK, I never had money before. I always heard you talking about it. Where should I put it? And so for some folks that are in the room now who are saying, look, I want to make sure that I don't miss the boat on the opportunity that technology companies and startup companies are offering in terms of actually making more money straight out of the gate. Mm -hmm. What are the skill sets that, um, that people in this room can start to think about so that they could be attractive candidates to be actually part of some of these startups that you're investing in? Yes, I think uh, people think that you have to be an engineer to work at a tech company. Um, and I think if you look at tech companies historically, that, that probably was generally true. But now tech companies are basically any company in the, in the market, right? And so Uber is a tech company, but like, you know, they employ far less engineers than non-engineers their company. And so when you think about it, there's engineering, there's sales, there's product, there's marketing, there's HR, there's legal, all these things that make sure that that business runs a appropriately. And so I think, you know, you figure out what, what skill set works best for you and then try and find ways to, to get into it. Like I have a, like a friend slash mentee of mine. She had never worked in tech before, but I could tell she was just amazing at sales. Like she could sell me anything, didn't matter what it was. And so, um, you know, if I just kind of directed her in a way and say, hey, if you can apply this to this industry, you know, these industries aren't that hard to figure out. You just read for a couple hours on a day and you'll figure out these industries on how they operate. And if you can then sell that product, you can be placed in any company. And so helped her, now fortunately, yes, I'm connected so I can help her, not everyone has that, but helped her get a, a gig at Uber. And she ended up being their uh, number one sales um, employee in her business that year. Um, and then she then said, okay, now I'm in the space. I figured out I made it work here. She's now doing the same thing at another company called Flexport. And so um, you can keep building once you get in the door, but the key there is figuring out what skill set you can provide. And it doesn't have to be technical because um, people who are good at sales make way more money than the engineers do at the companies. I promise you. Yeah, for sure. Now, when you're in a very, very early stage company and uh, you're trying to negotiate uh, compensation and maybe you don't have salary history, maybe you're just coming straight out of college or how do you actually make sure? Because everyone's, you know, the buzzword is, hey, I want some shares. I want some equity. I want some options. What does that even mean for a new employee? And uh, how would they go about and, you know, you, you don't have to give the full blueprint but how would they go about and what what are some of the uh, what are some of the elements that they should consider when trying to negotiate yeah. a salary at a technology company a startup yeah. yes i tell everyone who i know that's joining a, a startup like an early early stage company to just treat the equity as zero like assume you'll never make a penny off the equity cuz that's almost always the outcome. Um, and then so, and so you know, I, I would optimize uh, on salary rather than equity out of the gate. Once again, though, early stage startups have very low cash, and so they, they try to do the opposite, give you more equity than, than cash. Um, but I, I would treat you know, all equity as zero. Now, you want to work at a company where you believe the equity will be worth something in the future, but it's too hard to tell early on. Like, even when I invest in the company, I think it's going to invest in, like, let's call it 20 companies over four years. I think they're all have the potential to be a billion dollar plus company. But when you fast forward five years later, the one I would have picked to be number one probably is number 10. 
And so it's really hard for me as a professional investor to figure it out. And so if it's your first foray into, into technology, it's going to be really impossible for you to figure it out. And so value the equity at zero. I would optimize on your actual cost, cash compensation. In terms of um, figuring out what's the right market, you can look online for all of these things. Um, and then you can also just try and like ask people even in different industries to get a comp. So like whatever someone's making in um, you know, a non-tech industry in your same role, you can bet that like you'll be getting paid more than that. And so you should use that as your baseline and, and apply some markup to that. Um, as it pertains to negotiation, I think it's really, really hard. Um, you know, if, if the, in, in, this, in this job market where it, it's super tight and everyone's looking for opportunities, they can go find someone else who will take whatever they give them. And so I think you, it's really hard to negotiate um, as someone who's not ever been in tech at an early stage company. And so I would optimize more for getting in the door and saying, hey, you know, I think this comp is a little low for me, but this is something I plan to reevaluate with you in a year. Um, if, I pre- if I hit the outcomes you want me to, let's outline the outcomes. Let's renegotiate or have that point in time to discuss that you know, a year from now. And if you set that precedent early on, I think, one, it'll, it'll actually just make you seem more professional to, to the, the, the hiring manager. They'll be like, okay, this person is, is uh, a higher level of person than I thought they were going to be. And then when you can go prove that, you've got this hopefully written down somewhere. You said, hey, if I, if I do X, I can get X plus 20% on my salary, whatever it might be. And so try and negotiate it in the door and take the salary out the gate and try and push for a higher salary later on because – at the end of the day, you're going to negotiate. If you're negotiating, you're going for like 10k, which maybe be a lot, but post tax, not going to be that much. And over their lifetime, it's going to be very, very little. And so, I would optimize for getting in the door because even if you don't get the salary you want, that experience you might get might allow you to get to your next job be you know two x of salary and maybe more carry or sorry more comp- or, or equity as well. Yeah, um, the statistic, at least from what I've researched, is that. Uh, in technology companies, there's really only about 3% of the workforce uh, that's minority. And uh, you mentioned a couple websites, or you mentioned a few times, hey, you can look online, you can read online. And sometimes you don't know what you don't know, right? You don't even know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. And so if you had to recommend a couple of places that people should bookmark on their daily web browsing. Maybe they just cut down on the Instagram for 20% of the time and reallocate that yeah. to some of these sites. And they want to be more informed about mm-hmm. what's actually going on in venture because they want to be part of that 3% and hopefully mm-hmm. build that 3% to 5 or 10 or 12 or 20% yeah. of the workforce at some of these larger technology companies uh, being diverse where would you recommend that people start in terms of doing research online? Because I feel like a lot of times it's just, hey, I don't even know what I don't know. Sure. And I can go to the go- I know Google has all the answers, but I got to know what to ask, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So for you, uh, what, where would you recommend folks actually bookmark online to sure. start learning? Sure. So I think like um, newsletter wise, um, things to subscribe to are um, Axios. So Axios has many different publications across tech. Media, government, you know, um, energy, etc. So, one that tech subscription I think will go quite well for you guys. Uh, two, I would um, if you want to do the venture capital side of things, there's a newsletter called Strictly VC. I would add that one to your um, newsletter list in your inbox. And then, as it pertains to just like um, tech publications, um, TechCrunch is still probably a, a great one to read. Um, it's a little, it doesn't go in depth, but at least you get to a high level of what's happening in, in the industry. And then I think what you want to do is, let's say you pick industry, try and figure out what the trade publications are in that industry. 
and that will help you um, get deeper in that space. So like, for instance, if you like um, logistics, which is a very, very boring space, but there's a lot of money in that space, there's a, there's a publication called Freight Waves. If you, go and, if you subscribe to Freight Waves, you will see everything happening in logistics and have an edge on anyone in the space. At the end of the day, if you're trying to get in these tech companies, if you come prepared knowing their industry, you've, you're far out of anyone else, including folks in the tech space. Like, I, I can't tell you how many people I've interviewed for my companies that didn't even know what the fuck our company was doing. And so I'm just like, why am I wasting my time talking to you? And so, and that happens a lot, so that when you come with someone who comes prepared with that, you're like, you already won. Like, I want you to hire you already, you already won. And so if you can take that prepared step, um, that will give you a leg up versus even folks that are deep in the tech space today. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, I think there was a, a law that was recently passed that allows non-accredited investors to start to participate in some of these private offerings and private companies. And so let's talk a little bit about the difference between being accredited and non-accredited and uh, what the risks are, even if someone might be very excited about, okay, you know, this, yeah, it's just, this, yeah. just, this law just passed. <laughs> I can get into this private opportunity. I can be a baby VC. Uh, what are some of the risks um, that uh, that should be considered? First of all, what's the difference between sure. accredited and non-accredited investor? And why was there a distinction in the first place? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And now, with the legislation allowing for non-accredited investors to get into private opportunities, what are some of the risks associated? Yeah, sure. So... Um Historically, to invest in a private company, you had to be an accredited investor. And the definition that the U.S. has today is you either have to have a million dollars of net worth or have made $200,000 for the last two years consecutively um, each year. And so that was the rule before the Jobs Act passed that, that Ryan's referring to. And so now um, folks that aren't accredited have access to it. I don't understand the exact mechanism of what that means, but what it effectively does is now I can invest without having to basically um, prove that I'm an accredited investor. I think so the reason why that law was in place originally as every point was if you hadn't made that much money, you didn't know enough about analyzing companies and therefore you would end up losing your, your capital. Like, and that's what they're trying to protect the consumer. I think nowadays though there's so much information online, people can read about all these things and businesses that now the non-accredited investor can be oftentimes as um, informed as an accredited investor. And the rule also was just dumb because like, I was, you know, a, a couple years into my venture capital career at IVP or a couple firms ago, and I wasn't even a credit investor. Like, it was my job to invest in these companies personally, and I couldn't do it outside the company, which is why, once again, the rules didn't really make any sense. Now, now when people who aren't accredited and want to invest in companies ask me how they go about doing it, I basically tell them, what is the amount of money that if you gave me and I lit it on fire, you wouldn't cry about? Or, or shoot me about, or beat me about, right? And, and so that's the amount of money that you should be investing total for that year. You can divvy it up if you want across 10, 20, one investment, whatever you want to do, it's fine. But anything more than that, you shouldn't touch because anything you invest in out of the gate is going to go to zero. And so you need to take these shots on goal to learn about what you fucked up, quite frankly, in that first investment that you can hopefully get right in the future investments. For sure. Uh, wow, that's a lot. That's definitely a lot. Um, so uh, what I'd like to do, I think, I think we've had a good conversation. And what I'd like to do is just open it up. I know folks have come far and wide. Uh, and in you, the rain, too. In the rain as well. And um, I want to make sure that we also address any questions that you may have with regards to your own financial journey, your own uh, 
concept and blueprint for building wealth yourselves. Um, any questions you may have for either one of us uh, with regards to that journey. So I want to open it up for, for the last part of, of our uh, time here with, with some questions, starting with you. How do you, if there's a way to do so, how would you be able to assess overlapping markets to invest in? Like, let's say, like, for example, I'm inter I do music and I also do, well, I don't participate in music, but I'm in the music world. Okay. But I also am by trade tech. I'm in tech already. Okay. How do you better assess the overlaps in those markets in order to better invest, would you say? Right. So I would I would say first and foremost, um, like Rich was talking about, it's about really understanding trends, right? So um, one of the funny stories that I always tell is that I always knew I wanted to be in the music business, right? Even when I was at Harvard, I knew I wanted to be in the music business. And had I not had a great mentor who was at the Harvard Business School tell me that, look, Ryan, the way that the music business is structured is not sustainable. So if you are going to invest in a publicly traded music company, I would short the company. And so I had to go and learn, first and foremost, what does it mean to short a company, right? Because you believe that the stock price is going to go down. And I could only make that decision because I actually agreed with how he was predicting the trend would go. So he predicted that the trend was that the way that music was being monetized, uh, the price of jewel cases on CDs, he could see into the future, there's no way that would be a sustainable business into the future, right? Now, what we are starting to see is that with you um, being in technology and seeing the convergence of data and music and companies like streaming services, right? We're seeing that there is now a resurgence of profitability in the music business based on the sheer volume of people who would be willing to pay for streams so they don't have to listen to commercials, right? Now, this doesn't mean that it's the heyday of the music industry, but the trend is that it's going back up, right? And so uh, I think it's really just important to just make sure that you consider the actual trends and that's exactly what he's talking about. Consider the trends. And the only way to do that is to be on top of the trade publications, right? So whether that's on a very high level, like a tech crunch, uh, but then on a very granular level for your specific industry, whether it's Hits Daily Double or Billboard or whatever the specialized trade publications are for that industry, you have to actually be a sponge of information because it is available and you have to be intentional about the information that you go to find and then you apply that information to your investment decision making. Would you say it's also that important to have those kind of conversations internally then within your peers? Yes. Like that enforces it then you're saying. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So uh, I personally am a strong believer that the reason why there's a networking part of this entire event is because the no one in this room wants to be, even in two weeks, much less in two years, in the same place that they were when they were in this room today. Which means that the investment that you can make, even beyond money, is an investment in time, in relationships, because every single person in this room is a stock, if you will, and every single person in this room, if they have any sort of sense or drive or passion for success, right? And I believe the fact that you're here on a you know Thursday night in the rain, you have a sense of desire to succeed and advance beyond the place where you are today. That is, those are the kinds of stocks that you want to invest in. People are 
um, hopefully mirroring the kinds of stocks or companies that you would like to invest in. And so it is extremely important to just stay in touch with the folks because someone here is going to take Rich's advice and be inside of a startup company that's in your space and is going to have much more specialized knowledge than you would be able to read at TechCrunch, right? And the, the communication of that knowledge, the conversations that you can have, the insights that you can receive by just having those conversations with someone who's on their way up, right? And maybe connected to a company that's also on its way up are also going to give you an edge in your investment decisions. The one thing I was going to add to your question, or I should say Ryan's answer, is that yeah. you, know, you, you see these trends. So, so Ryan mentioned his HBS professor said, you know, the music industry as it is today is fucked. And so you see, you see that trend. Right? So he, he gets told this trend. Then you think, okay, is the music industry going to die? No. Music's not going anywhere, right? So if this incarnation doesn't work, you have to think to yourself, okay, how will it work then? If this doesn't work, what's an answer to that? And so, you know, you can look at many options. It could be, okay, um, buying CDs doesn't work. Streaming might work. Um, touring might work. Going independent and building software to own your own business might work. And so I think it's, you have to see the trend, but then also think through what's the answer to the trend because that's where you're going to make the money because not everyone's going to do that last point. And if you do that point, once again, it's like being prepared. No one does that. You're going to do it, and you'll make the money on it. For sure. For sure. Go ahead. Hi, how are you? I Say your name. Danielle. Danielle. If you're trying to grow your assets and your capital within the next two to five years, is it smart to invest when you have student loans? I'm the university. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping the same thing. Um, it's, um, I think the, the, the benefit of student loans is it, it delays how much you pay out today, right? And so um, if you had you know, $50,000 in student loans, um, because you have the loan, you're not $50,000 out of pocket today. And so that enables you to have cash that hopefully you're making at your current job to, to reinvest that in something else. Um, so that's the why you take the loan in the first place, that you can use capital that you don't have there to go find ways to, to make money elsewhere. Now, it's a tough question, because like, if you are in a spot where you're barely paying your loans, no, you should not be investing in anything else. Like Pay off those loans and, and get to a spot where you feel comfortable. If you are in a spot where you're paying off your loans, um, have savings, are making savings each month or each week, however you want to calculate it, um, that's in a spot where you can make a, a potential investment. I, I probably wouldn't still invest in private companies because the risk is, is so high. And, and I, frankly, I think most people's ability to understand this business is very, very low. And so I would, I would probably find safer routes, whether it, it's in the public markets, whether it's in bonds, um, whether it's in CDs or treasuries. The problem with those treasuries is that just the, your lockup of the money is very, very long and, and the interest rate is very, very low. And so um, it's, a, it's a question what your risk tolerance is, quite frankly. And so the higher your risk tolerance is, the more you want to get closer to, to private. But I, I probably would wait to private until I've got, you know, I probably wouldn't invest in a private company until that number that I'm okay lighting on fire is at least $5,000, okay. if not multiples of that. Yeah, we got a couple. Go ahead. So, it's a question from both of you. We see you both up here. I see you grind, listening and stuff. Um, what's your what's your what's your biggest? What was your biggest like failure money wise? And then how did both of you like recover in that situation? He's had no failures money wise, so that, he's kind of stumped. You know what I'm saying? You know what I mean? Uh, for me, I mean, I think. Uh, listen, man. Um, 
I have a very extremely high risk tolerance, all right? And my risk tolerance is extremely high because uh, the bets that I've always made have always been bets on myself, right? So I believe that uh, trust is built on promises kept, right? And so you trust people when they keep their word to you. So if you can wake up every day and keep the promises you make to yourself, then no matter what financial storms you may need to weather, you always know if you get knocked down, you're going to bet on yourself to be able to get up because you've always kept the promises you make to yourself. Now, trust me, I've definitely gone. The reason why I do these events at, in, in general, hold on one second. The reason why I actually even do these events is because I actually have fallen flat on my face several times financially, and I've always bounced back. And when I bounce back, it's always been even bigger than when I thought I was at the end, right? And so I'll uh, give you a perfect case in point. I came out of, uh, got to Harvard, and uh, they had a desk outside of Bank of America, right? Y'all know that desk. You go there, right? You know, y'all know the desk, right? So you go there. I'm in school, and I'm, you know, I'm going into the bank. I've got my three dollars or whatever in there. You know what I'm saying? I can't even take anything out the ATM because you gotta be able to at least take out twenty. You know what I'm saying? I gotta go to the teller to get my dollar fifty. You know, to go buy something, right? But in any case. I'm walking out and there's a table. And the table is, hey, you can sign up for a credit card, mm -hmm. right? And so I'm like, oh man, you know what? I'm, I'm working dorm crew, I'm cleaning toilets, I'm getting $12 an hour, you know, I can just um, buy my stereo system now and pay for it, you know, it's gonna take me a lot of toilets, but I'll be able to pay for it, right? And so in the absence of somebody sitting me down and saying like, look, when you make this decision to put this $2,500 stereo system on your credit card and you're only making $12 an hour and you still need to buy books, right? Um, you don't really understand how that's going to affect you later on. And it, and it takes a long time. And then the collection notices start coming. And then, you know, you change your address to your mom's house. You know what I'm saying? So they, they start going there. Hopefully your mom just kind of pays them by accident, right? You know, whatever it is. So trust me, I did all of it, right? And, um, you know, it really just takes, it really just takes, it, trust me, literally, uh, it really just takes the kind of discipline once you do have the knowledge to change the habits that you get into. So it's a, really about a mindset, right? Um, a lot of times, I mean, really, um, my parents are missionaries in the Salvation Army, all right? So they literally chose a life of poverty. They chose that life. Chose a life of sacrificing wealth today in the service of others. They're very religious. So they believe, oh, I'm stacking up treasures in heaven. They're going to have big golden mansions in heaven, right? That doesn't pay for me to go to Harvard, doesn't pay for a house, etc. And so they just really, you know, they just, they never had money. So they never uh, were able to sit me down and say like, look, you can actually, this, these are the ways you should do it. And so in a lot of cases, if you come from that place in your family, sometimes your mindset is a mindset of poverty as opposed to a mindset of prosperity. And once you actually can learn uh, and, you know, coming to events like this, speaking to folks, uh, finding a great mentor, and you can change that mindset, then it's on you, right? And so for me, once I learned, hey, this is how credit works, oh, my credit was never messed up again, right? Took me a second to get out of that hole. Took me a second to get my balances to zero. Took me a second to be ahead of all my payments. Took me a second to make sure I'm actually um, getting my interest rate down, right? But once I knew, 
I'm betting on me to make sure I can keep the promises I make to myself. And I mean, listen, everybody in this room has heard, like, look, I, I put up a million dollars when I lost my laptop, right? So my laptop got lost or stolen, lost. Uh, I mean, y'all can go read the cases. It was public, right? And... Um, you know, I put up a million dollars because I had seen that. So um, just to give you a case in point, one record, right, which was Cassie's Me and You, had basically generated in publishing, because I owned 100% of that record, close to $5 million, right? And so I'm like, okay, I have nine albums worth of music on this laptop. One of those records, or five of those records, in aggregate, is at least going to make that million dollars back. If I get that laptop back, I'm gonna have more than enough money to pay the reward or whatever it was. And so, literally, I made a little YouTube video. You know, I was like, hey, I'm putting up a reward in the interest of getting my intellectual property back. I'm putting up a million dollars. Somebody found the laptop. It didn't have any data on it, but because I didn't really you know, write up a long contract about what, the, and you're a law student, right? I didn't write up a long contract. I lost that suit. He sued me and I lost, like literally I was just showing my boy Dev that like when that judgment hit, I walked to the bank and literally $2.3 million disappeared out of my account. Oh, this is a debit from the judgment, $2.3 million. So you can imagine, I felt like I was back in my college days. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Going to Bank of America, you know what I'm saying? Oh, Negative 2.3, yeah. right? You know what I mean? <laughs> I still bounce back from it. And when I say I bounce back from it is I realized that, look, there were a lot of middlemen. There were a lot of people that basically could be um, the money or royalties could be redirected because I was using so many services, collecting royalties from this place, um, doing distribution with this place. So when it came time to collect on that judgment, they could just call those people up and legally say, hey, look, we need to redirect that money to us. That's our money. And so my ability, once again, to bet on myself was like, look, I'm going to be my own distribution company. I want to be my own communications company. And I had to learn how to do it. But once again, folks like Richard understood that because I was a founder that was closely related to this Space. problem, mm -hmm. I was really the only person who cared about it enough to be the arbiter of making a solution that would be valuable. And once again, look, you know, I could have just laid over, just rolled over and said, Mom, I'm coming home to live on your couch. You know what I mean? But I learned how to code. I built a company. I understood where the trends were going and was able to go raise 5.7. And look, look at my, look how I look, look, you know what I mean? I'm walking up, trust me, I'm walking into venture capital offices with grills, and, you know what I mean? They're like, do we want to invest in this guy, right, you know? But seriously, when you come in and you have that kind of, like he said, if you come in and you've done your homework, Oh, that's going. You you're gonna you you're gonna be treated differently than someone that's like, oh yeah, I just need a job or I just need an investment, right? And so, um, yeah, I've had a lot of bounce backs, and uh, I will say that everything that he's talking about in terms of that information being available online, take a little bit less time on social media and mm -hmm. intentionally invest it in acquiring the knowledge that will help you to change your mindset from poverty to prosperity, and also start to teach yourself the habits of how you deal with money. I know a lot of people that don't even check their bank account because they're scared to see what's in there. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? They're scared to be like, yo, man, I hope that didn't come out this week. Oh, man, it came out this week. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Oh, man, my car payment. Oh, man, my insurance. They don't even look. Get into the habit of managing 
and looking at checking your accounts every day because you're smart. So you'll start saying like, yo, what's happening in my account isn't smart. I can change this, right? And so um, hopefully those are a couple of, you know, anecdotes would ho- hopefully be helpful, right? Yeah, for me, I'll give, I'll give a, a former example, maybe a future example. So formerly, back to the point that Ryan just made is, you know, I, I was younger. I didn't budget anything. Budgeting, I was like, I have money in my account. That means I can spend it, so it doesn't matter. And, and so, you know, I had uh, fortunately got this internship at Credit Suisse when I was in college, a junior college, intern at Credit Suisse for the summer. And that was the most amount of money I'd ever seen in my life in my account. I'm like, this, this money can never go away. This is amazing. And, like, fast forward, I actually finished my, my junior college, and I'm like, no, senior college, I'm like, I have no fucking money. <laughs> How is this possible? Um, and then part of that, too, and then before that, I was, like, spending money, spending money, and my account was, like, never going down. I was like, this is amazing. I don't know what's going on, but it's amazing. Turns out my dad has the exact same name that I do, and the account was tied up in the wrong spot. And so one day my dad calls me. He's like, what the fuck is this? I was like, dog, I don't know what you're spending money on, but, like, my account says this. The banks didn't give a fuck, right? And so, um, yeah, you got to watch your accounts because you don't know where it's coming from. Like, if you are making zero money like I was in college and you're spending money, your accounts can't say the same. It's not possible. I did not think through that. Um, Then the second point, I guess, in the future is uh, the biggest point where I I may fail in the future is my fund. And so to start a venture capital fund uh, is this thing called a GP commit, general partner commit, where you have to commit a portion of your fund in your own cash. I can't just go raise hundreds in the fund. Like, so let's say Ryan wants to start a company. He wants to raise a million dollars. He can raise a million dollars from me and put none of his own money up in theory. That doesn't work in venture capital. So generally, you have to invest between 1% to 2% of your whole fund size needs to be your own money. Mm-hmm. So if you raise a $100 million fund, you have to have a million or $2 million that you're going to put in yourself. I have very little cash. I put all my money into my fund. If my fund fails, I'll be washing toilets. And so that's the future potential field that I'll have as well. Uh, my question uh, is a two-part question, very quick. So how do you get app developers to take your project seriously? And is that enough to then attract investors? Okay. All right. It's a two-part question. Yeah, that's the second part. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so um, uh, the key is it's hard. You have to sell your vision on, on what it could be. And you want to target in, or engineers who care about your problem, right? So if you are building a um, music app, let's say, like you were talking about before. Okay, so there you go. Um, it, don't talk to any engineer that doesn't listen to music. Like, they will give zero fucks about your project, and they will never work on your shit. Um, and, and so what you need to do is be able to, to sell the vision of the future. And if, you know, you've got some sort of business plan or business model, showing that engineer or engineers that you've de-risked some of it, right? And so to, to succeed, we have to do this monstrous thing. But I've chopped wood in the first 10, 20% of it. And so we're almost there. If I can just get you to come build this thing, that's how I can get to the next level. The other piece is, um, even though I said before, treat equity as zero, um, you got to get a lot of equity. Like, you need to get a lot of equity to, to attract a high-level engineer to go work on your project. And I think the high-level engineer is, is not always important. I think it's important if your business requires you to raise capital, i.e., you're not going to make money for a long time. Um, that means you're going to need to have a high-quality engineer that an investor like myself will believe in that he or she can go build that project. Now, if it's something you can build today and make cash today, I think the, the quality of engineer matters a lot less. But um, it's hard. It's really hard. I would, I would go like, you know, they call it founder dating. 
I would go and spend time uh, with folks. I'd try to find someone who has a full-time job and let him or her work on it as a side project. And that will allow you to see like if it's the right fit or not. You'll see his work or her work. They'll determine whether or not they think you're the right CEO or partner for them. And over that time period, hopefully you get to the point where you both get comfortable and can say yes to something and figure out what the right deal is. But uh, I think it's one of the hardest things to do, honestly. Well, so I guess piggybacking off of that, because um, you know, the same kind of applies to music. How do you remain attractive to where uh, people see your product and want to invest in you? Because everybody in their mind, I'm sure there's a lot of artists in here right now, and we all do the same thing. I mean, I study music, right? So I, I play keys and everything. I produce as well. I do everything that you do, basically. Mm -hmm. um, so what are the things that I can do uh, to make myself attractive enough to where people feel comfortable investing their money. Because um, I have a business plan and everything, but I, I'm there's like a wall I'm not getting through. Um, right. I have the content and everything, but there's something that I'm not doing that's able to convince the person to be able to invest in me. And what are those things that I can do? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's a great question. And um, I have a foolproof answer for you. And that foolproof answer is that before someone's gonna invest money, in what you're doing, you need to convince people to be able to invest their time in you and what you're doing. And so actually the, the two questions are very, very related, right? Because at the end of the day, either you're gonna go be part of a team or you're gonna make your team the team, right? And if you're gonna make your team the team, then you guys have to be better than the teams that are actually running right now, right? And it's actually possible because the reason why I think music is so aspirational is because the stories of people who've succeeded in music, a lot of times they come from the trap. They come from the dirt. They come up from the mud, right? But at some point, they figured out a way. I think I was watching, uh, I think I was watching a, uh, a double XL interview about uh, Lil Baby. And he said, look, you know, Young Thug used to tell me, what are you making on the streets trapping? Whatever you're making on the streets trapping today, I'll pay you that to come and hang out at the studio. Now, that wasn't an investment. It wasn't, uh, hey, where's your business plan? You know what I mean? It was a relationship that was built, and the investment was made in building some sort of emotional connection. The reason why you invest time to make emotional connections is because emotional connections lead to irrational decisions. The same reason why your mom if you literally run up her credit card every single time and she gets a new one, we'll give you another one, is because that emotional connection that you built over time trumps the rational decision, don't let this man use the credit card, right? Because he's going to mess it up. So that's what I'm saying. At this stage in your life, in your career, in your creative process, what you do have and probably what you might have more than others is actual time. So you can either attract people to invest time in you, or you trade your time to build a relationship, which is why there's such a strong internship culture in the music business, right? Because a lot of times what you need to be great in the music business, you don't learn at Georgetown. You don't learn, I mean, a lot of the great music CEOs, they didn't go and study music business at NYU to be a great music CEO. They figured it out, and not only did they figure it out, their requirement to succeed their threshold was a lot lower than anybody else who was actually doing it. Meaning like, I only have a plan A. I can't go get a job at Credit Suisse. 
either have jail, <laughs> right? Or I'm gonna get shot, right? But I need to make money, so I'm doing what I gotta do to make money, and I see two outcomes over here, or I can go talk about it on record over here, and I'm gonna figure out the business, right? And so that, those kinds of stakes are extremely competitive if you want to actually run against those kinds of stakes. So that means that you have to be able to, like I said, I'm, and it always comes back to the same thing, put people in your phone. There's a concept that I have called a circle of fives, right? Circle of fives, very simple. Five categories of people who are critical to your success. You wanna be a musician. How many music lawyers do you know? How many music managers do you know? How many music producers do you know? How many graphic designers or visual artists do you know? How many music PR people do you know? You should have five people in each one of those categories. You don't have five people in each one of those categories that will actually answer your phone call. You got a lot of work to do in order to reduce the dependency on luck to being successful. Because you're gonna be as successful as your, like you said, you've got a great value proposition. But how many people would even pick up the phone to talk to you about your value proposition, right? And so that means in the, in the absence of money to invest in, and you might have to, like, this, whatever you spend on them sneakers, you might have to take somebody to dinner, right? You might have to, you know, you might have to, I'm doing these events for free. You might have to pay for events, right? You might have to, and then if you do pay for events or you pay for conferences, et cetera, don't be standing in the corner saying, yo, I'm fly. You get everybody's cell phone number, and guess what? Your follow-up game being better than somebody else's follow-up game means that you're one step closer to somebody answering the phone, right? The reason why I built a, tech, a texting platform is because, yeah, Instagram DMs and Twitter DMs, and yeah, things can go down in the DMs, right? But at the end of the day, when you have somebody's cell phone number, most of the people who have contacts that could be valuable to them, you probably have them in your phone, you're not even using them. If you're not making 30 phone calls a day, first of all, the reason why a lot of people, I said, oh, you should make 30 phone calls a day. A lot of people are like, yo, nobody's even gonna answer my call. Okay, well, you better work on that, right? How do you work on that? I, you have to have some sort of value exchange. What's the value exchange? Well, I can't give you no money. Well, I can maybe intern for you. I can clean toilets for you. I can get you some coffee or whatever. You know what I mean? But What's that? I usually offer beats. Offer whatever that value exchange is. And the reason why I would say getting somebody coffee or driving for somebody or whatever, yeah, it might seem menial, but um, y'all ever saw that uh, film? Um, I think, uh, think uh, Jay-Z did the, um, he, did, he did a whole soundtrack on it. Um, American Gangster. American Gangster. He started out as a driver, right? That's, a, that's probably not a job that if you are, you know, you have dreams of being, you know, uh, Michael Jackson, you might not want to start out as a driver, right? But Frank Lucas started out as a driver. Why? Because sitting in that car for seven hours a day or six hours a day, hearing the plays on the phone, right? Hearing the deals go down, being that fly on the wall, knowing that he had the intent he wanted to change his life. That kind of time investment is different than, yo, let me, let me email you a beat. Let me send you something, right? Going and getting somebody coffee. Oh, well, what meeting you got today? Oh, okay, tell me about that. Okay. The ability to um, find information online is great. But I'll tell you this. When I, when I first started to um, visit Silicon Valley, um, 
I started to really understand the power of relationships. I was at a barbecue with Ben Horowitz. Ben Horowitz, legendary venture investor. He hosts a barbecue with all kinds of legendary people, right? There's a guy in the corner standing with a plate of brisket. So I'm like, okay, Mark Zuckerberg's over there. Everybody in the line to go talk to Mark Zuckerberg. I'm like, oh yeah, this is, he looks cool. Ben introduces me, it's the CEO of Google, right? Hey, this is Sundar Pichai, CEO of Google. That ends up to an email exchange. My follow-up game is crazy, right? <laughs> I'm not even going front, you know what I'm saying? I know, I know this guy, I mean, he's the CEO of Google. Do you understand how many emails or uh, whatever he has to actually think about every day than my little email to him? My follow-up game was crazy. I ended up um, being able to actually visit the Google campus. And one of the projects that they're working on um, is the fact that, okay, yeah, Gmail, if you have a Gmail account, uh, I think when you sign up for Gmail, you basically give them the ability to, you know, anonymously Start analyze data. your data, yep. right? But what they really said, though, and what was the greatest takeaway, is that usually email is basically uh, a recap of the most valuable exchange, which is somebody had a meeting or something. And so you, you see the email, per our meeting, per our discussion, right? But Google doesn't have that captured, right? I mean, I guess they're trying to now because they're listening to everything we do on our phones. Is that, Oh, we're just listening to see if you say Siri, right? They're probably listening to everything, right? You know what I mean? But the bottom line is that the real value is I, I could, I'm not going to sit and email all of what we discussed to all of you in this room. I'm not going to sit and text all of what we discussed to all of you in this room. So getting engaged in activities that allow you to have a dialogue and exchange, A, to build emotional equity in a relationship, and B, to get the data that not even Google has, right? Because the stories that your grandfather tells you the stories that your parents tell you in terms of experience, they're not going to sit down and write you an email about it. They're going to sit down over Thanksgiving dinner or whatever it is and tell you those stories. Those are going to be the game-changing, life-changing stories that you will take with you that either inspire you to change your family trajectory or will actually give you a, a recalibration of your compass in terms of what you're doing in life. So I would, I would say... In order to make people want to invest in you, first of all, they want to be, you want to make yourself um, investable in terms of emotional equity, right? And emotional equity is just as simple as, yo, just check it in, man, how you doing? Or, yo, I'm just, yo, what you working on? You need some help? Oh, um, I know X, Y, and Z person. You need an introduction? I mean, his whole world is just, yo, let me introduce you to this founder. Let me introduce you to this engineer. Let me introduce you to this head of sales. Oh, you're raising money. I know three people that are actually, in. that's what continues to build that value exchange. And so a lot of times people think of value as, a tie, as, as it pertains to money. And so you have a great business plan and you're like, oh man, I, I need this amount of money to do it. Some of the greatest companies were founded with partners that didn't pay each other, right? but they paid each other in time, energy, resources, and the shared vision. And so I would invest as much time as possible, and that goes for everybody in this room, invest as much time in building emotional equity in relationships because that will always make all the difference. Even if you're better qualified than somebody else who's friends with Rich, 
Rich is going to give the job to his friend because of that emotional equity. I mean, maybe sometimes you have to tell his friend because that's his friend. Like, yo, you're not qualified, right? But nine times out of ten is just how it works in just human behavior in society. Go ahead. Hi, Camille Edwards. Um, so with the increased public interest in cryptocurrency, how, do you, how important do you think it is for new investors to be paying attention to those analytics and trends um, when looking at businesses? So for example, I noticed on the Cash App now, they offer Bitcoin, and it's like you're seeing it in more spaces where people are frequently transferring money, exchanging money. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, that, that's one trend I, I stay away from personally, um, just because we we try and stay away from trends that involve like regulation. Um, and, and so our viewpoint there is it's unclear um, how that will be treated in the future. And so I could make an investment that I, I believe needs to exist, but tomorrow the U.S. government can say, you know what, I don't want this thing to exist anymore, and someone shut it down. And so that's that like regulation risk is like one risk that we won't ever take. And so um, there are other industries that fall in that realm, too. It's like we'll um, probably do very little in, in healthcare as well just because, like, things get shut down uh, via, you know, legislation so quickly. Um, and so I'd rather work in industries that are unregulated or less regulated because there's, less, there's one less thing for me to worry about why my business will die. Yeah. Um, cryptocurrency for me, I, uh, I think it's great. We have different stances on it. Um, and I think my stance is probably different from Warren Buffett's stance. He's probably the most successful, if not the most successful time, yeah. uh, value investor of all time. And um, I actually believe that uh, with any investment, you take the information from both sides and you've got to make your own decision, right? Um, for me, I was very fortunate. Um, and once again, it comes down to just an introduction. So once again, I've been Silicon Valley. Ben introduced me to uh, Brian and Fred, Coinbase. who started Coinbase, and he gave me my first Bitcoin, right? And then after that, I was like, everybody got to pay me in Bitcoin, right? You know what I mean? <laughs> right? And at that time, we're talking about six years ago. We're talking about 2013, right? So I had a tour. I said, look, everybody pay me in Bitcoin, right? And once again, it's about trends. And during that time, between 2013 and 2017, there was an incredible interest mm -hmm. and uh, value explosion of, okay, this thing could be interesting. It's, uh, it's uh, not decentralized currency, right? It's not regulated by the same reason why he wouldn't invest is the same reason why people were excited about it. So there's really two sides of the coin, no pun intended. <laughs> and so uh, what I would say is uh, really you should figure out the trends that you believe most in because uh, on the flip side of Richard, there are plenty of cryptocurrency and blockchain investors um, who have you know, made incredible returns, right? Money, yeah. um, and so you just gotta figure out, I think it's always best to be as informed as possible, mm -hmm. and not only just be informed as possible, try to build relationships with people who are real experts in the space, so that when you read something online, you have a good sounding board that said, hey, I just read you know, this, and you've got a real expert in the space. And guess what? LinkedIn exists. Uh, Instagram exists. Twitter exists. You see folks that are talking about this, they're passionate about it. It's actually more, um, it is actually easier than ever, and, than in any time in human history, to be able to initiate a relationship and a conversation with someone. And I think the biggest takeaway, hopefully the biggest takeaway from this tonight is, yeah, you should mingle amongst one another, but really to have an edge 
is not just to have an, have an edge in terms of building wealth. It's not just about, okay, you know, I saved 500 this month. Mm-hmm. You know, next month I'm going to save 510. It's also about the investments of time that you're making. Because I will reiterate this again. They say that we only use 3% of our brain. That's what, that's what I mean, I've read it. It was a movie about it, et cetera. When you look at your contact list in your phone, I've done this exercise with literally anyone who's ever sat down with me for dinner, for brunch, wanted to work at Superphone. I said, look, how organized are your contacts? If you got 100 people in your phone, how many of those people are you talking to on a daily basis, weekly basis, et cetera? How many of those people are you keeping tabs with their successes, right? Because guess what? Nobody wants to get a phone call when they're already at the top, right? Because they're like, oh, man, everybody wants to call me now, right? So when you actually are checking in, you tap in at different levels. Yo, man, I had a, I had a tough job interview. Or, yo, I was trying to get into this startup, but it didn't work. Or, and then eventually, like I said, folks in this room, they want to actually excel. They might get knocked down six, seven times. And because you were there listening, you know, sharing your experience as well, when they do get that job in that high-paying position or that come into that windfall, they might be like, yo, I'm good now. You need an investment? You know what I'm saying? Yo, let's go do this together. And so what I would say is it's not always about um, how much you're saving in terms of money. And also you can't even really save time, right? You always have to spend it. Every day is just getting spent, right? So if you've got to spend it, be very intentional and smart about how you invest it. And getting back to your cryptocurrency conversation, I would say, look, get as much information as possible. Mm-hmm. Make your own decision. And also try to invest your time, energy, and resources in finding experts. If that's something you're really passionate about, finding experts that are going to be great sounding boards. Because sometimes with the plethora of knowledge that's available, it becomes challenging to navigate what's actually worthwhile and what's reliable information. So sometimes you need an expert as well before you start jumping into making investments. Just two quick follow-up points here to Ryan's response there is that um, uh, it's one thing to also you have to like you know, see a trend happening, but once you see it going, you have to always be continuously evaluating the trend to see if it changes. And so you know, I've, we've been in businesses where we got the trend right, we saw it going hot, and we assumed, hey, this trend is going to be the trend forever. And so the stock of the, part, the, comp- the company goes like this. We hold it, hold it, hold it. It goes like this. We're like, oh, it's just a blip. It keeps going, going, going. It goes down the other direction. Like, it literally goes down to zero. And, and so you're like, shit, I thought I had this trend, which you had the trend right, but you didn't manage the change in the trend because trends can change very quickly too. So you have to always be evaluating things that you think you got right to maintain and see if it's still going that direction. And even though we don't, I don't invest in, or I, I should say our fund doesn't invest in crypto, I do own some crypto, but it's in my amount that I will light on fire and be fine with it, though. So. We have time for one last question. Uh, David Sides, um, I think that when people look into investing and they do their research online, they run across the same investment vehicles like uh, securities, real estate, crypto, um, micro, micro loans. In the spirit of not knowing what you don't know, are there any investment channels that you guys invest in now that you wish you would have known about before and that maybe we should aspire towards investing in? Totally. I mean, I could start. Uh, for me, um, I really started to think about being more diversified in my investments once my mom was like, hey, I, I like how your account's looking. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so can, can you, you know, and it's one thing for me to take risks. But then if my mom says, like, hey, you know, I got, I got a few dollars, can you, you know, and bottom line is that you can't even, 
you're not even allowed to do that, right? You can't invest for people, right? So all I could do is say, hey, look, mom, this is what I'm doing, and this is how you can mirror it. But it, it really caused me to um, do a lot of research on uh, ways that I could diversify the kinds of investments that I was making. And so um, I would say there's a few different classes, all right? So obviously, they're your stocks and bonds, right? Um, and then the stocks, bonds, mutual funds, uh, ETFs, exchange, exchange trader funds. Um, and then outside of the market, the stock market, there's a real estate market. And up to this point, most of the time, you're like, man, if I just get my house, that is my investment in real estate, right? But there are now ways that you can actually crowdfund real estate investments, and there are platforms that exist. You should research them online for getting into real estate. Um, other asset classes is like cryptocurrency, if you even consider that an asset class, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then also, um, up to this point, I feel like uh, the art market has been a market that's mostly just mm -hmm. been pretty closed off to investors that don't want to spend $8 million on their Warhol, right? And so um, as I've been doing my rounds and doing my research in financial technology and startups in that way, really, and I think the last, the last uh, wealth plan that we had, we had um, um, Clay, my friend from Titan, is really democratizing all of these asset classes and giving people the opportunity to get into it. So to, just to sort of recap, real estate, um, outside of just buying your own house, right? Uh, technology investing as well um, in the private sector through um, companies that allow folks to sort of like aggregate their funds to make an investment. Um, so like uh, Seed Invest or AngelList, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, but once again, it comes down to the amount of research that you want to do. I wouldn't, I wouldn't jump into any of these classes unless you <laughs> actually dug in and did your research. But I would say art, I would say real estate, I would say, um, I would say cryptocurrency if, if you're interested in it. Um, and then there really is no substitute for just good old-fashioned value investing, right? There's a reason why Warren Buffett is one mm -hmm. of the richest people in the world of all time, right? And, uh, I mean, literally, it's just value investing. It's, it's knowing the trends early, right? And then also um, making investments in companies that you feel, no matter how large they've gotten at the point you've invested, that they still have... Uh, a good ways to grow and continue to be valuable. So there's really no substitute for the meat and potatoes of investing, right? Yeah, for me, I mean, I just don't touch anything I don't understand. Like, full stop, I just leave it alone. Now, when I pick, when I think about what I wish I knew more about beforehand, it's just one answer for me is real estate, nothing else. Um, and I, I, would, I would actually go towards the direction of actually buying the homes. Now, that's obviously can be quite expensive for anybody. And so going back to my first point, and Ryan just made it again, too, is this trend. And so just figure out, because, yes, New York City is expensive as fuck to go buy a home or apartment, wherever it is. So don't do that. But there are uh, lots of cities, towns across America that are growing rapidly that are one-tenth, one-one-hundredth the cost of New York City. And so that's a much more affordable place to go buy something, not by yourself. You can have friends to do as a group versus yourself. And that can be a great you know, revenue stream because you don't have to live in it. You can rent it out, make income, you can Airbnb, all these mechanisms. Because I think real estate has so many opportunities to make money, and it's generally one of the lower risks places to, to put money in the first place. So I would have preferred if I had spent more time looking at that first. Like, 
for our fund, we look to raise money from you know wealthy ass people. Um, I would say we we probably met with I don't know ton, hundreds of millionaires and billionaires. The number one way that those who have made their money was real estate, yep. not even close. Yep. Um, and, and all that was was not. Yeah, I guess they're smart, but not like being smarter than us in this room. They just thought, okay, this is a neighborhood that should be worth more in the future. Let me figure out how to play it. Um, and so I think it's also like one of the also less sophisticated ways to go out investing while also be able to get a great return that's generally safer than other mechanisms.